This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you guys think of Silicon Valley stars from, you know, the seasoned CEOs to the dynamic young founders who really appear to go seamlessly from dorm room startup to billionaire valuation, you know, I'm talking about the 20-somethings who become instant members of the Three Comma Club. It is hard not to think, you know what, that could never be me. I've got an incredible work ethic, but I didn't graduate anywhere near the top of my class in high school. I didn't go to an Ivy League or even one of the so-called little Ivies. In fact, I even have a learning disability. Well, in my 22 years as a business journalist, one of my favorite CEOs, forget Silicon Valley, I'm not limiting that, I'm talking globally, taught me that you can turn your weaknesses into strengths. He should know. He was born dyslexic that was so severe that growing up in West Virginia, his teachers questioned whether he'd even ever graduate from high school. Um, graduate? Yeah, you could say that. Not only did he graduate, he got his degree from West Virginia University, not an Ivy League, and after years of hard work, rose to become the CEO of one of the brightest stars in the Silicon Valley constellation. There was none of this, you know, quick, get an idea, add a dash of venture capital, mix in some flash in the pan marketing, and boom, instant billion-dollar IPO. How did he do it? And why now is he sharing all his intellectual and monetary capital with startup companies mostly outside Silicon Valley. Well, let's ask him. He's John Chambers, former chairman and CEO of Cisco, the Leviathan global leader in networking equipment, and now CEO of JC2 Adventures. Welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. My friend, John Chambers, how are you doing? Liz, I'm doing extremely well. It's a pleasure to be with you again. You're amazing. I tell you, if you did my PR work all the way through, I would have gotten more raises. You know, I was thinking about Cisco. I've covered it for yeah. so long, but is it fair to say without Cisco, which has been around since 1984, making routers and the equipment linking networks together, is it fair to say that without Cisco, we wouldn't have a global internet today, or at least the one that we have? I think it's fair to say we wouldn't have the one we would have. Uh, the internet was going to happen. It was just that Cisco got there first and, and emerged point away from many of our peers in terms of the direction. But we accelerated it. And Liz, you remember what it was like when I said, it's going to change the way the world works, lives, learns, and plays. And people said, wait a minute, aren't you the food truck company? And what are routers <laughs> doing? And, and who cares? But the ability to see how technology was going to change our lives, mainly for the better. And I would argue it was the first technology that truly the majority of society, regardless of where you live in the world, uh, understood that this is going to make a fundamental change for them. So I think you now see that evolution. So uh, Cisco is honored to, to be the lead in this. And uh, we were far from perfect company, but boy, it was uh, a rush going from 70 million in sales to 47 billion and uh, what? 400 people to 75,000 people and creating 10,000 millionaires. But what many people miss 
is my parents were both doctors. They taught me deal with the world the way it is, not the way you wish it was. And you were right. I was dyslexic. Uh, I had a teacher, Mrs. Anderson, who helped teach me how to take that weakness and actually make it a strength. But there are days when you have doubts. And that's very natural in terms of the direction. And I think actually those setbacks and doubts make you who you are in life. Oh, absolutely. You know, I hear that West Virginia twang still to this day, and I love it. Uh, Let me bring you back to those halcyon days, even though, yes, you were going through the education system as a student with dyslexia. Tell, tell me what that childhood was like, where you would see that intersection often with friends who didn't have learning disabilities. And in those days, you know, teachers and schools, they weren't that great at dealing with these, were they? Well, they didn't even understand what dyslexia was. And I, I was very fortunate. I had two parents who were doctors, as I said. They worked hard to have me read write. But all you did when, they, when you do reading again and again and again is you groove a bad stroke. Uh, you read backwards as a dyslexic. Uh, and they didn't even have the term. It was a learning disability. But a teacher took an interest that my parents knew, and I worked with her for three years, and she taught me how to deal with it. Is it humbling? Oh, yeah. Once you know that when your time is coming around in class to read, uh, that you probably won't be able to read, you're going to lose track of where you are, and kids are going to laugh. It's why I never laugh at anybody else's issues uh, except my own. And it teaches you uh, humbleness uh, uh, in life. Uh, But everybody has challenges. And I think that's the most important thing. Once you realize you can overcome the challenges, you begin to believe in yourself. That's true of overcoming the challenges. West Virginia, a wonderful state. But boy, we went through the ups and the downs economically. Now we're going to try to come back again with a vision for the state becoming the first startup state in the central part of the nation. Uh, Once you see Boston collapse on high tech and Silicon Valley take over, having the courage to go and try to be a part of it, it gives you that inner confidence, hopefully managed by humbleness. And I'm a far from perfect leader, but I try to treat everybody like I'd like to be treated myself. And I try not to ever laugh at somebody else. Well, yeah, you learned that growing up, I'm sure, dealing with what you dealt with. Was there really sort of a teacher or somebody who questioned or said to your parents, I don't know if John is going to be able to even make it through high school? Well, the teachers said it to me. They didn't realize I was hearing it. And I don't want to mislead anyone. I had a wonderful childhood. Great family, very loving environment, uh, et cetera. But I had real doubts. And uh, they said it to parents, and that's when I think they began to look at how do you get somebody to maybe help me through this. But they were always there for me, and that's a luxury I know many people in America do not have. Uh, and so there are challenges, but you know, the, the positives in my life far out well, outweigh the challenges. When you eventually graduated from college, and you, you got a degree also from Indiana University, an advanced degree, You went to work for Big Blue, IBM. I want to know, were you nervous in the interview process? This was what, in the 70s, right? I want you to reach back to that day because IBM was sort of the godsend in tech back in the 70s, right? Well, let me tell you in the sequence you raised them. First, uh, uh, I went to three different schools, uh, (laughs) Duke, West Virginia, Indiana, professional student, nine and a half years, a (laughs) wife who is a speech therapist, and she calls me her only failure in life. Liz, she can't (laughs) pick the accent that goes with it. And uh, after going to school for nine and a half years and 
in law school, probably played a little bit more basketball than I should. I had a lot of fun, uh, but uh, I intended to go to work for a big uh, company out of Chicago or New York, mergers and acquisitions, use the background, and uh, I didn't even like computers. Uh, and my buddy who was at IBM said, John, would you come and interview with IBM? And I said, Steve, uh, I don't like computers. In fact, you helped me write some of my computer programs and I helped you on the business programs. Uh, and uh, no, he said, I got two tickets to the basketball game. So I said, I'll be there. <laughs> and so I go to interview with them. And, and when, when something you don't view something you're interested in, you treat people very well, but you're not nervous at all. Right, right, right. And True. At the end of the day, the branch manager, and they were like SARS at IBM, said, John, you're not going to join us. And I said, well, I'm deeply honored, sir, but uh, I know. And he said, let me show you how technology can change business in a very unique way. And he had my mind. Uh, and then he said, here's what you can make as a salesperson. I said, sir, I went to school for nine and a half years. Yeah, and I'm ready to be a manager. <laughs> and he said, no, you're not. <laughs> and uh, that was humbling as well. But I enjoyed it. And life has a way of giving you chances on that. Uh, the IBM was clearly the foundation for everything I did. Uh, my first day at work at IBM, just to give you an idea, sometimes there were bumps along the way. Uh, we moved into an apartment with my wife, uh, who's my high school sweetheart. Uh, and we Which had a doll uh, in Indianapolis, Indiana. Okay. And it was the middle of winter, and I was getting ready for the session the next day. And the lake was frozen. There were a bunch of ducks out in the lake in a little pothole they were keeping open. My wife, Elaine, walked my dog, and it literally became that my dog that night. Uh, and the dog took off, ran over, jumped in the pothole, about drowned. Elaine pulls the dog out. The ducks go down to the other end of the lake. Then basically, the ducks come flying back up, go back in the pothole. The dog jumps in the pothole again. <laughs> Then it finally does what it was, is, you know, he was trained to do, grabs one of the ducks, brings it over and drops it at my wife's feet with it flopping. The neighbors knew that I met that day that I was a hunter by background. I finally heard the commotion, went outside watching this scene go on. And uh, we all agreed that the dog, I mean, the uh, duck needed to go to the vet the next morning. <laughs> and my problem is that's my first day work at IBM. So I call IBM that next morning to explain to them I'm not coming into work because I've got a duck I have to take to the vet. I take it to the vet, and the vet basically says, John, this is going to take about six weeks to heal. Uh, you're going to have to give it antibiotics all the time. I said, well, you'll keep it here, and I'll pay for it. They said, no, it's your duck. So I take the duck home, put the duck in one room, a dog in the other, a wife who's about to trade me in, and for six weeks – uh, I am giving antibiotics to this duck. So, you know, bumps even in the first day of work at IBM, but it clearly gave me the foundation of understanding industry transitions wait for no one. IBM had to change if they got left behind, and they did. Mm -hmm. uh, you right. have to change when it goes from one generation technology mainframes to many computers to the Internet. And if you don't change, doing the right thing for too long actually gets you into real trouble. So one of the key lessons in life. Indeed. Uh, eventually, after a, a stint at Wang Laboratories, I know that's when you ended up at Cisco. And that would have entailed a big move to California. What was that like for you? Well, it was a realization that I've seen, Liz, almost every movie there is to see. And that's the good news about the experience and being a CEO for 20 years. But growing up in West Virginia, watching it grow 
and then was the chemical industry of the world and the coal mining industry of the world. And because we didn't change, we fell behind in so many ways. We went to Boston. It was the Silicon Valley of the world. 128, the digital equipment, uh, in the uh, data. Where was Wang? Wang was in Lawrence, or I've been there, haven't I? Yeah, I mean, right on yeah. 28 north of Boston. You got yeah, it. You know, I worked at WHDH Channel 7, so which used to be WNEV. I was, worked there for three years, so I knew all about the history of Wang. All of the background. But because we didn't change, 32,000 jobs went away <sighs> at Wang. jobs went away at digital equipment. Mm -hmm. Uh, A thousand high tech companies were left behind. So I understood market transitions. I'd seen it in my home state. I saw it at Boston. There is no entitlement. If you don't change, you get left behind. And I got an invitation to go interview with this company called Cisco and how you treat people in life determine your future. When I first left Wang, I thought I had a good background. My sales numbers were great. I thought I'd get a job, send out the resumes, wait for the offers to come in. <laughs> of course, they didn't. And very dumbly, <laughs> and it caused you to, to take a step back. And in the end, I was working about 22 job opportunities, 21 of which were through friends. Mm-hmm. And I got an invitation from Cisco when it was only about 400 people and 70 million in sales and to come in and be their number two and the number one if I didn't mess it up to run the company. And uh, I didn't understand all the implications of it, but I did understand market transitions. And and that's what I try to do, Liz, pattern recognition and market transitions. Well, yeah, and make sure that you you have the guts to take a a grab at opportunities that fly past you in packages you may not recognize. Cisco was at the forefront, John, of so much when it came to stringing together the World Wide Web. But I want to know, when you joined the company in 1991, where were we in this country in the lifespan of the internet? Well, uh, it was very early stage. There was a thousand devices connected to the internet when Cisco was formed. And when I came out here, there was the the valley in many ways was shaped by a company called Hewlett Packard. They had the culture of both being economically successful but good for society. And uh, with only 400 people at Cisco, I called up Lou Platt, the CEO of uh, Hewlett Packard, and I said, you've never heard of this company or me. Uh, I'm with Cisco, not the food company. (laughs) I got complaints on in the mail about my food trucks. Uh, but the internet company, and I said, I don't understand Silicon Valley, and uh, can you teach me? And he met with me, and I did what any good salesperson does. At the end of the meeting, I got a next meeting. We did it for three years, and then we had moved from a company that was something nobody understood to a powerhouse on the way to becoming the most valuable company ever, and I turned to Lou, and I said, how can I pay you back, Lou? You made such a difference on everything. And he said, John, just do it for the next generation. Mm-hmm. And it struck me how unique that was. And it's something yeah. I've tried to do going forward. I coach a lot of the young CEOs. I try to get diversity and inclusion in everything I do. I try to balance a great capitalistic system with a capitalistic system that is dedicated to legitimate needs of society. It's, it's satisfying both is the way our future should be. And, and I had, it was a rush. I, uh, yeah, and we won every corporate social responsibility award there was to win. Uh, Democrats and Republicans in, in the U.S., uh, Middle East, uh, uh, India, uh, China. Uh, and that's where I learned that doing good is not just the right thing to do. It's also good for business in terms of direction. Well, you know, I've been in London with you. I've been at Consumer Electronics Show with you in Vegas. I've been all over the place. 
interviewing you, Davos, Switzerland, on top of a tiny Alpine Swiss village mountain, freezing, and talking to you really about cold every time. <laughs> <laughs> every single time, you you were just so energetic and and generous, John. Very generous with your knowledge and thought. But now that knowledge and experience is really needed, particularly as we go through this pandemic. You led Cisco through multiple crises, correct? And including a couple of epidemics, right? Talk about about that and how each one kind of differed. And I'm sure it was a fearful time. You as a leader, it could get very lonely at the top, I guess, as you're trying to grapple with these things. Well, you know, in the sequence you raised them, Liz, um, Shimon Peres, the late president of Israel, was somebody that was a great friend for 17, 18 years. And he taught me a lot about life. And, and I was almost an extended member of his family. Uh, but he, he taught me that leadership is lonely before I understood it. Mm-hmm. And I said, it isn't lonely. I've got 40,000 people in my company, Shimon, and, and uh, we're just changing the world, created 10,000 millionaires of our employees, one of the, mo- the most valuable company ever at one point in time. And it, I don't understand the loneliness. And he said, you will when it gets tough, because when it gets tough, you will be by yourself. And you have to deal with that. And he said, John, here's my experiences. And every time we're together, he would teach me in terms of direction. Secondly, learn from my parents, and I am a product of my parents. You know, yeah, uh, I wish the world would be different, but you have to deal with it the way it is. If you've got an underlying illness, you must direct, you know, approach it and deal with it. And so the first time I did this that was really, really painful was 2001. It was the dot-com bus. Uh, where, uh, oh, 2001, I'm sorry. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's where basically uh, I think it was – 50% of all startups disappeared. Uh, at Cisco, we went from a growth rate of 70% the first week in December to minus 30% mid-January. We'd never grown less than 50% ever. And so it was very painful to go through. And most painful, after 10 years of growth, I knew I was going to have to make decisions that people would second guess. I knew if I made the wrong decisions, the impact on our employees, our shareholders, our customers was huge. And I'd never seen the movie before. I'd been through the crisis of 97, 98 with the Asian financial crisis, but I made the right move there. Uh, Knowing Asia, when everybody else pulled out of these tiger economies, I doubled down. (laughs) 12 months later, we were number one in every one of the economies. Uh, 2001, I did not see it coming. And it was survival for us. What Jack Welch told me, you're never going to have a great company until you have a near-death experience. I didn't understand, but it was near-death for the company and for me. And I knew if I messed up, it wasn't me I was worried about. It's the whole employee family and customer family. So it's lonely when you make the tough decisions. Once I make them, however, I am focused and I go for it with all my heart and soul. And uh, so once we were in trouble, uh, I made the decision to make our changes and it included layoffs, large layoffs. And uh, we did all of our changes in 51 days. Day 52, we started to gain share. And this is what I try to teach. It isn't the things that I got lucky on or we did right. It's the challenges we face and how do you get other people used to it. Liz, we forget, and you're younger than me uh, by a lot, uh, (laughs) but this generation has never seen an economic downturn. I mean, it's been 12 years. And so people weren't in positions where they saw that, which we saw during the 90s and early 2000s every five years. 
And so they didn't know the playbook to run. It's remarkably repeatable in terms of how you handle the uh, uh, playbooks and the setbacks. You were about to say? I was about to say SARS and some of these like COVID types of situations, although coronavirus, no one's ever dealt with a global, complete freeze in place, millions killed. It's just insane. But tell me back during those days, because Cisco, obviously a global company, and Mm -hmm. suddenly we were faced with this epidemic of SARS. Well, each time there was an economic issue, an epidemic issue, a supply chain issue, uh, we tried to say, what could we do to both survive? How do we help others survive? And how do we give back? And that balance of a capitalistic society that has major social responsibility is the playbook we always ran. Uh, Interestingly enough, while SARS was very, very dangerous, and we were lucky how it got resolved relatively quickly, Uh, The bird flu epidemic uh, that occurred in Mexico, I was down with the president of Mexico talking about how do you literally put the internet across his country, meeting with his cabinet, et cetera. And this pandemic, we thought, broke out in southern Mexico and the reports were disastrous. Uh, Death rates going through the roofs, hospitals jammed, crammed, uh, that you couldn't meet with another person. The infection rate was so high and they had to cancel the meeting that evening with us and my team. Uh, that's where we did telepresence lives, and we actually accelerated the video types things you're seeing today with Zoom, WebEx, Google Meets, uh, Skype, etc. And we built the systems that allowed you to meet virtually, so that if this occurred again, you could prevent it. But also, how meetings could occur virtually that all of us understand that have been so instrumental to navigating through this pandemic. And then at that time, President Bush and the leader of the U.S. And uh, Governor Schwarzenegger, uh, leader within uh, California, said, let's come to Cisco and watch about innovation. And we actually showed them this where they looked at this and said, wow, it's like we're in the same room. And it was true. <laughs> Schwarzenegger said, John, you had Hollywood help. And I said, how'd you know? He said, the colors. You make it look seamlessly. But it does speak to often American innovation in particular during times of crisis. We always rise to the occasion. And we've got to do it again. We've got to do it in an inclusive fashion. But once you've been through that dyslexia, once you've been through that experience in West Virginia, once you've been through the experience in Boston, once you've seen that you have to change, you're going to get the same results. It gives you the confidence to be able to do it. And realistic as a leader, you make the best call you can with the data you've got, and then you have to go for it. So I'm the optimist about our future of this country and very much the optimist that we will come out of this even stronger than we went in. I do not underestimate for a moment this will be uh, probably the most challenging combination of events at a speed we haven't seen before. We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze 
to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. And and that helps me transition to JC2 Ventures and how you have basically bird-dogged these emerging companies, and they're not all Silicon Valley-centric. I mean, you go to the Valley and you, you just toss a pebble and you hit 50 different kids with the 11-second elevator pitch and some great idea to solve a problem we don't even know we have. You have, with your years and years of experience, handpicked some of the real sort of future companies that you feel can, can change our world. And I wanted to go through some of them. But before I do that, mm-hmm. how do you spot them? Well, Liz, it's, it's interesting that you ask. Uh, I did it very similar to what uh, I learned at Cisco when I did 180 acquisitions. And most <laughs> That's people, it? <laughs> yeah, most people would say 12 of them for over a billion dollars. Uh, but most people would say we were by far and away the best in the whole high-tech industry of doing this. But I had a playbook. And I knew what I would look at in terms of what would make a successful acquisition or not. Went with GE's mentality, Jack Welch, of being number one or number two or don't compete. So a minimum of 40% market share. So the bar was very high. And do you do it yourself or acquire within it? And as a result, we got about 16 out of our 18 product areas, number one or two, which nobody's ever done in the industry before or since. And we did it by realizing it's about attracting the right talent creating the right culture, willing to take the risk, and willing to realize that a small company can often move faster than a big company. So with these startups, I'm still customer-oriented. My customers tell me who to uh, invest in. Uh, I picked the talent much earlier in technology terms. Series A means angel investing. Uh, B, you begin to get a little more value. So I'm usually a very early investor, but mainly I'm a coach, Liz. It's much like you and I learn from each other all the time, but most people have never had a chance for a coach who's seen the movies so many times. So what I do is I watch for a business model change combined with a new technology change. And so when you find, like all of us would understand, an Amazon enabled by the internet that's doing this virtually uh, as opposed to physical retail stores, that was a very logical evolution. And today, the transition to uh, artificial intelligence and about how it changes the customer experience, the importance of cybersecurity, uh, the ability for uh, big data and data analytics uh, to be able to perhaps cure world hunger uh, with insects being the next form of protein for our our, uh, world that we live in. So I try to pick it based upon 
business model change with technology, then having the courage to bet on it and move very rapidly uh, into those opportunities. Well, we have a whole panoply of companies where you have salted your capital, 18 of them. I wanted to pull out a couple of them and give me a line or two on why you looked at this and said, I believe in you. And I want to start with Cloudleaf, because this is a company I know that deals with supply chain and making sure that the skids are greased and that things move well and there aren't many disruptions. Boy, have we seen supply disruptions, particularly from things like trade wars and now, of course, what happened with the pandemic. Why Cloudleaf? You'd think, Liz, we'd learn from our mistakes of the past. We didn't. Uh, On supply chain, you cannot become dependent upon one company as your sole supplier or one country. We did both uh, in this last downturn. Also, the supply chain, which the Walmarts of the world made work so amazingly, it's 20 and 30 years old. We haven't changed it. And so it's set up for disruption. And so you combine the Internet of Things with 5G technology moving to the edge, ability to do supply chain all the way down to the individual fabric, it's set up for disruption. And uh, what Cloudleaf has done, I think, is position themselves potentially to lead this disruption. And then by taking them to joint customers and saying, what do we need to do in product development? I think we've got a good shot at that one. So uh, let's stay tuned. But uh, that's why Cloudleaf. Uh, This one caught my eye, pin drop, because you're talking about the future of voice. You know, first it was uh, you punch in a password. Then it was maybe use your retina or your fingerprint. And you're now looking at facial recognition. But voice recognition and voice to me is fascinating because everybody has a different voice, but there are mimics. And then there are the bad actors out there who managed to grab a snippet of your voice and use it against you. Tell me about Pindrop. Well, Pindrop uh, is a fascinating one, Liz, because you remember I stepped on a lot of people's toes in the service provider industry when I told AT&T and Verizon that voice would be free when it was 95% of their revenues and profits. And I said, <laughs> uh, when you put it over the internet, it's going to be a rounding error versus the data and your competitors will make it free. And they did. So in many ways, I was the one who kind of played, downplayed voice in terms of the future of technology. However, uh, in terms of the next generation future technology, I now see it the reverse way. Out of all the issues that we do, the area that is hardest to spoof is our voice. And you can't just take recordings and replay it. And you can actually be able to tell this in such a secure fashion that you can identify uh, the bad ones who are coming in to disrupt your call centers, who are mimicking you and giving you reasons that you need to call and give them information. And they can pick up these uh, people very easy by voice and recognize it. So I think security systems of the future, especially after the terrible pandemic we're going through, you aren't going to want to put your finger uh, on a given area. Uh, I think voice will not only be the primary way of security, but it will also be the way we interface to the Internet of Things, to technology, because this is the way that you can give commands and where people and machines uh, cross. I think voice will be the primary communication we use. So it's a bet on an industry trend, i.e. artificial intelligence, uh, cybersecurity with voice being at the core but it's really bet on the next generation of interface uh, to the next generation of the internet. I want to tell you something that happened to me last night. For the Mm -hmm. first time in three months, 
we went out to dinner for Father's Day to celebrate for my husband. Happy Father's Day, John, by the way. Thank you very much. Oh, your husband, happy Father's Day to him as well. Thank you. And we went to the same restaurant where we last ate out three months ago. It's just down the street. We were sitting there and it's only outdoor seating now. It overlooks the Hudson River and the GW Bridge and the Upper West Side of New York because we're in Jersey. And we're sitting there, all four of us, the two kids and Jeff and I, and we're talking and we're looking out and all of a sudden I saw something that started to get closer and closer. And suddenly I realized it's a drone. Somebody was sending a drone across the river and spying on us. And the owner got very concerned and was really worried about it. You've got a company called, is it D-Drone? Yes, it is. D-Drone, which detects malicious drone activity. I saw this and I said, I got to ask John about (laughs) D-Drone. Well, Liz, it's amazing. It goes back to a trend. I got into unmanned aircraft. Uh, When you think about how things are going to be delivered to your home, uh, how basically you're going to be able to gather data after a storm of where the exposures are and be able to respond to emergency groups. But I indirectly got to know a company, a German company at that time, which then became an American company that is able to capture the drone data, be able to triangulate off of it, identify what type of drone it is, what is the direction, uh, and based on its history, determine how you deal with it. And then we actually developed with the government uh, capability to bring down the drones with electronic beams, like something Mm. out of Star Wars, and have them sit down. And what many people are realizing is the new normal, that unfortunately, while drones will be used for many good reasons, delivering pizza to your home, uh, (laughs) helping somebody during a terrible uh, natural disaster, et cetera, they are misused in many ways, from landing on buildings and spying on the data to imposing on your personal privacy to the primary way, unfortunately, terrorists will probably attack America will be through drones and flying in explosives into, I hope not, but unfortunately probably will happen, a public place, et cetera. And so I realized the downside of this and found the technology that could really make a difference. And the common theme with every company we've talked about is a brilliant young CEO, in this case, Jorg, uh, who grasps the capability and who wants to be coached and say, how do I scale this and direct it? And so D-Drone is currently on a tremendous role. And uh, you were lucky to see the drone the other night when you looked up. Uh, I live in a no-fly zone here in Palo Alto. I've got a state park behind me and a, a regional park beside me, so there's no drones allowed. And if I look on my system recording-wise, as of the last year, 1,652 drones have come over my house. I only oh. saw two of them. So this is an example where, for many things, technology makes good. It also creates problems. If you don't understand how to balance it with new technology, it can make all the difference in the world. What do you do with a CEO or a founder, let's say of a company, who is completely not ready for prime time, but is brilliant? And when I say ready for prime time, an ability to talk to and hire the appropriate people or grow a company or or manage employees and inspire them. What do you do? How do you guide somebody like that, John? Well, it's a little bit, Liz, like uh, a back to the future. I never acquired companies at Cisco unless the CEO wanted to be acquired 
And last, their culture was very similar to our culture. We weren't perfect, but we put customers first. We were a family. We took care of each other. Uh, and so if there wasn't the right culture match and if the CEO didn't want it to occur and didn't want to be coached in a new environment, I didn't acquire them. Same thing with my startups. Uh, if uh, you know, No matter how attractive the financial situation is on the startup, I'm really after being a coach, scaling, creating jobs. And if the CEO doesn't want to be coached, if she or he doesn't know what they don't know, if I can't have tough love when they do something wrong and get it out on the table, then I don't invest. And if they hesitate when I start to coach them, uh, unlike our kids, <laughs> I can just say, <laughs> you're on your own. You We're let done. me know when you want some coaching, I'm gone. <laughs> and uh, so it is that tough love scenario. But it's it's been the most fun thing I've ever done in my business, Liz, because the average one is scaling at about 70% growth per year, uh, creating jobs very rapidly. And almost all, with the exception of three, are actually growing during this downturn, which is unheard of as well uh, in terms of the direction. And so I picked the young CEOs, and then I'm pretty candid with them. And, and it's the most fun thing you do because it's like being a coach and watching your, your team win the games and develop a great culture and, and learn. And John, is is going public still the holy grail of a company's moment, especially for somebody like you who's investing? Is an IPO still that thing, that brass ring everybody jumps for? No, and it's unfortunate. And it's unfortunate on three or four fronts. First is the, the best exit for a venture capitalist is for the company to be acquired. It's very quick, 100% liquidity, almost zero liability on it. Uh, to take it public takes 10 to 12 years on average in the Valley, even with all the ecosystems that are in place here. And uh, as you do it, uh, you've got to have predictability in the earnings and you've got to have the longer term trend. Liz, you know, this financial market, we have become so short term oriented is this quarter this year. Can you imagine a CEO saying I'm putting this money in place for five and 10 years out in a public company? First time they trip, activists come flying in. They say, you're out of control. We're going to cut back all your expenses, your R&D. They'll get a 20% rise out of the stock, sell the stock, leave you hanging, and move on. So uh, it is so much easier as a young company to either get bought or to have, with a huge amount of cash available today, stay private much longer. Now, there are lots of problems with the, these scenarios. First is 75% of your headcount comes out after a company goes public after they start creating jobs, et cetera, not when they get acquired. You get acquired even by Cisco, your engineering ranks might grow, but your sales, your services, finance, et cetera, do not after that. Secondly, America doesn't get a chance to participate. Uh, at Cisco, not only do we make 10,000 millionaires, I mean, I did an amazing rush uh, of our right? employees, yeah. But also, I ran into so many people who said, I put my kids through school based on your stock, uh, that you made such a difference with, with many Americans, where if you wait until the company's almost fully valued, like we've done with Uber and some of these other things, yeah. the average American does not get to participate and actually is, is in danger of the downside. So I think we've got to do a better job of protecting startups, a better job of creating an environment where they can go public and protect them from the areas such as shareholder activism, uh, which might add some value, but the downside, I think, is much worse on it. So it's something the nation has to become a startup nation again. We are not. Uh, we've done the same play too long. Liz, you remember during the 90s, and you were just a teenager then. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, right. we had 
two to three times the number of IPOs we have today. Yes. Uh, we had three times the number of startups, venture capital backed. And so ours are decreasing at a time like France, and I'm the French high-tech ambassador for Macron, who both you and I uh, know very well, although your French is much better than mine. I know you're, <laughs> you're fluent in French, but uh, they do, they've increased their number of venture capital-backed startups by five-fold in five years. They're becoming a startup nation. And we have yeah. the courage to get back to that. I'm trying to do this in my home state of West Virginia. But it's how do you do it and how do you have your role models in terms of direction that becomes so key? Well, you are a role model to very, very many people, not just in the Valley, but to somebody honestly like me who I just soak up your optimism and your energy, John. And I just want to finish with this. And it brings us back to you know, your original, what you said, turn your weakness into your strength. And that is dyslexia to this day. Does it still affect anything you do? Tell me about that because there are people who are listening right now who may be grappling with the same type of situation. Well, it does, Liz. And uh, back to my uh, high school sweetheart, Elaine, it drives her crazy because you can't give me one direction at a time or write it down. I've got to see the whole picture because if I get it wrong, I turn the same way each time. Really? I reinvent the letters. I can't read a speech. I've never read a written speech ever, whether it's a graduation speech, everything else, because I lose my spot. And I never was going to tell anybody about it uh, you know, in business because I considered it a major weakness. Uh, and one day on Take Our Children to Work, a young girl came up and tried to ask a question uh, of me, and there were about 500 people in the room, and, and the kids asked questions that usually make me nervous, uh, would be an understatement, but she couldn't get the question out. She said, I'm dyslexic. She started crying and, and started back, and I came off stage uh, to follow her and to tell her I was dyslexic, and uh, that here's how you do it. You, you've got to realize you're never going to be able to do certain things that other people do naturally. But you can take this and you learn how to accomplish your goal differently. Uh, you learn that you're going to get a curveball from the pitcher every time. You just wait on it and take it to right field. And so I said, when you come up and ask the question, don't try to read it. Do not mineralize it because you'll forget just like I do. But just look me in the eyes and ask, talk to me like I'm a family member of what's on your mind. And the room was unusually quiet. And as I got up, I realized I left my lavalier mic on. And I disclosed oh. to everyone in the room what's a fear for me. And my hands sweat right now, Liz. They are just talking to you on this. The, the fear that is still there, even though I've learned to deal with it most of the time, would be with me the rest of my life. But I went back saying I've disclosed too much and my employees will think, and my employee family would think lesser of me. And the reverse happened. I got more feedback about John. Thank you for sharing. I'm dyslexic or I have family members or I realize the human side to you. And now I understand more what makes you tick. And so this is what I think life's about, not to get too philosophical, but we deal with the problems the way they were and the way they are. Uh, the world waits on no one, especially this new digital world. You've got to move or you will get left behind. There is no entitlement to this country or to any business, uh, but the ability to dream, get a good education, the internet, and make dreams come true. So my biggest worry coming out of the challenges that we now face isn't that we're going to make it through it. 
It's do we have the courage once we see our path through it to build up off the strengths and weaknesses and to have the courage to dream again and go make dreams happen again. And instead of what we often do during, during the major challenges in life, we get very sensitive to those challenges, and the minute things return, we don't address them. Hopefully this time we'll do what's right economically for capitalism and for the benefit of society. And I think the two have to go together in terms of the direction. So now I'm working with my startups and startups worldwide. I was just on uh, the uh, video session to India this morning with about 150 startups about you made the changes for the world the way it is now. And let's talk about how do you come out of it? And I think we've got to dream again as a country and have the courage to go for it and uh, to do that uh, to the benefit of all in society would be my dream and aspiration. I'm trying to change the world one more time in my own small way, Liz. John Chambers for president. I swear, John, you are one of my all-time favorite people. Forget CEOs, forget any kind of slot that people try and put anybody into. I just glean so much. From you, and I hope everybody listening understands what kind of person he was, he became, and he is today, and that is part of every cell in his body. We are so thrilled that you have come on. Everyone talks to Liz John. Thank you. It was a pleasure as always. I'm, I'll be your wingman anytime. I'm far from perfect, <laughs> as you know, but I think dealing with things together is fun, and changing the world together is fun. So, uh, mutual admiration both ways. Good luck to you and all of your your little hens, your baby startups, and we, we look forward to seeing them grow and fly. Thank you so much. And everyone, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to these stories, which I know have the ability to change the course of your life. Just listening to people like John, who have been able to overcome so much and plow right through it. Forget climbing over or going around. Just plow right through it. And uh, please join me Monday through Friday, every single day, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Fox Business Network for the Claim and Countdown, as always. And we will hear you, see you, listen to you the next time. Thanks for joining us. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.